Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from Jorge Cortez and Mary Copland, who share some insights into current and future treatment approaches in chronic myeloid leukemia. The experts comment on treatment options for patients with multiple refractory disease, novel agents of interest, and more. Hello, uh, we are here at uh, SOHO in Houston, uh, the 2022 edition. And uh, we are uh, discussing uh, about chronic myeloid leukemia, some important uh, new topics and new information that is emerging. I'm very glad to be joined by my uh, colleague and dear friend, uh, Mary Copland uh, from Glasgow. And uh, we're gonna be talking about some of the important uh, aspects of CML that are still emerging uh, today. And uh, one of them is the use of uh, new drugs or, or new ways of using drugs that we already had, particularly in the more advanced setting of the disease uh, in patients who have received already two or more tyrosine kinase inhibitors, patients who have the T359. We've had panatinib for a while, but we have new ways of using it. Um, more recently, we've had a seminib, a new drug with a new mechanism of action. Uh, Mary, what, what's your take about these new new drugs and what's the role in these uh, contexts of patients with multiple refractory disease? So I think it's great that we have more treatment options for these patients. I think the Assemble clinical trial has clearly shown that Asiminib is a good option for patients in third or later lines of therapy. And I think the optic data looking at the different doses of panatinib is really interesting and, and what I'd like you to comment on Jorge is your thoughts on the starting dose of panatinib in the third or later line setting what, what should we be doing? Um, th th that is a, an important question that this optic trial try to uh, address and uh, so this is a study where there were patients with two or more prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors of T359, and we explored the starting doses of 45 milligrams, 30 milligrams, or 15 milligrams. Uh, the important concept here was that once the patients achieved their response, defined as 1% transcript or less, then they reduced their dose to 15 milligrams daily. What the results show in general is that 45 milligrams achieved the best uh, response overall for the total population. Uh, but this was more noticeable in particular subsets of patients. And in general, I, I think that these are the patients that have the most difficult disease characteristics, patients with T359, patients that had received more tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, patients that had the most refractory disease. Those were the patients where the difference in favor of 45 milligrams uh, was most noticeable. So I think in general, well, I guess the other aspect of this is the safety. And there was a, a, a slightly higher increase in the risk of arterial occlusive events with the 45 milligrams, but the overall incidence of these events compared to what we knew from the PACE trial where we just stayed at 45 milligrams was much lower. So that suggests that this strategy decreases the risk to some extent. So I think in general, to me, what that means is that well, I, I mostly use 45 milligrams. Certainly patients with higher uh, risk for arterial occlusive events, especially if they have a disease that is not quite as refractory. Uh, I may consider 30 milligrams, but always trying to keep in, 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 in mind this risk-benefit um, 
balance because after all, the main risk for these patients is the leukemia. That's how I see it. I don't know what you think. And then how do you put that in the context of, we also have a seminiv. So yeah, within our practice, we would aim to start patients who were resistant on 45 milligrams of panatinib, especially if they have a TT15I mutation. But where we have patients who've been multiply intolerant of different TKIs, we might actually start at 30 or even 15 milligrams and then titrate the dose up if we need to. I think in terms of the choice of asiminib versus panatinib, I think certainly within my own practice, um, for intolerant patients, we would consider asiminib before panatinib. For resistant patients, I, th I think it is very much a personalised approach depending on the patient and what their comorbidities are. I think whichever drug you choose, you need to follow them up more frequently when you start them on either asiminib or panatinib, just because we don't have as much data yet with these drugs. Um, Simnib does look like it's a safe drug, but there may be some cardiovascular toxicity and we just need to be mindful of that. And with panatinib, we, sh we should be doing cardiovascular assessments on patients at least annually. And certainly before we start panatinib, monitoring blood pressure, lipids, glucose, to treat any of these and prevent, if possible, any cardiovascular events. I think the optic data as compared to the PACE data is really reassuring in terms of the cardiac events and the benefit of the 45 milligram dose as compared to the lower doses in terms of efficacy, I personally think outweighs the slightly increased cardiovascular risk, especially if you're monitoring patients for cardiovascular events, monitoring blood pressure and preemptively treating any of these underlying conditions. Yeah, I, I think that you, you, what you mentioned is very important. I, I don't think we should see this as a, an issue of, of which drug is better. I think the personalized approach and, and the more we get this data, the better we're able to precisely do that, personalize the best drug, the best uh, starting dose, et cetera, for each individual patient. And, and in, in some instances, we will clearly favor one. In some instances, we will clearly favor the other one. In others, uh, you, you probably are more in the middle. Uh, but that's very important to consider all these options and do whatever may be best, uh, uh, best for, the, uh, for the patient. So um, I, I think that that's the value of these two studies. And after all, what's important is having more options for patients. It, it really uh, is what, uh, what uh, makes the most difference. And, and speaking about these, you know, <clears throat> one of the aspects that we've kind of forgotten a little bit about in terms of doing research, um, but that's still important is, is the blast phase patients. Uh, they, there are not too many who transform, but they're very difficult patients and we really haven't had very good strategies. Um, but, but there's this study that you led that, that, uh, that uh, looked at combinations based on panatinib uh, with chemotherapy. And I, I found those results very appealing. Um, tell, tell us again what, what, this, uh, what this approach is and, and how you see it now fitting in our current concept for blast phase. Thank, thank you. So, so within the UK, we did a, a small study. It was a phase one, two study combining panatinib with flagida chemotherapy. So flagida chemotherapy is a form of chemotherapy used to treat acute myeloid leukemia. FLAG can also be used to treat acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So we use this for both 
lymphoid and myeloid blast phase and the Flagida consists of fludarabine, cytarabine, idorubicin and granulocyte colony stimulating factor. Um, so we combined one or two cycles of the Flagida with panatinib initially starting at a dose of 30 milligrams daily but we could increase or decrease the dose of panatinib depending on response. Two-thirds of patients going into this study achieved a second chronic phase and the majority of these went on to have an allogeneic stem cell transplant. The, the main headlines from this study was that the panatinib flagida combination was tolerable in patients and induced efficacy in, as I say, about two-thirds of patients. The one-year survival was 47%, which compares favourably with panatinib on its own it's around about 20% and three-year overall survival is 41% as compared with 9% for panatinib. So we think going forward for blast phase, these combination approaches are going to be increasingly important, but we also need to look not just at panatinib, but at some of the other new agents coming through, such as asiminib in this situation. There's also another novel study that is being conducted in um, the French population called Ponesa, which is combining panatinib with azacitidine in the myeloid blast phase population and I know there has also been studies at the MD Anderson combining hyper-CVAD chemotherapy with panatinib for lymphoid blast phase mm -hmm. and all these combination studies have shown quite favourable results as compared to TKI on their own but we just need to be mindful of the toxicity of the additional chemotherapy as well as the TKIs and just think about that as well as the additional supportive care that the patients might need. From, from the practical point of view, you, you get a patient in blast phase, you give them, let's say, the flagida plus panathinib, you get a hematologic remission, um, but still with MRD, and we know that in transplant, it's better if you don't have much MRD. What do you do? Do you give them another cycle? Do you go to transplant right there with a hematologic response? What, what's your preferred approach? So that's a really good question and what the match point study actually showed us was that if patients didn't achieve a complete cytogenetic response after one cycle of treatment they didn't receive it after a second cycle so my advice now would be that if you've got hematological control you proceed to you proceed to transplant after one cycle of flagida you, you don't give a second because you're just going to increase toxicity probably without increasing the level of response yeah, I, I, I follow the same practice. I think that, yes, it's optimal to have very little residual disease, but the risks of both toxicity or even relapse trying to pursue a bit deeper response are higher than, than just going there. Um, the, 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 the other side of the question is the, the TFR, something that we've been increasingly more interested in in, in CML. And um, we've gotten to from the point of being uh, a research approach to now doing it regularly in practice. But we seem to be stuck. We, we, we seem to be at a point where about, you know, plus minus, but about half of the patients ever become eligible. And, uh, and of those, about half of the patients will lose their response. So grossly 25, 30, 35% of patients do it uh, successfully. Um, what, what do you think is going to take to get us to the next level, to, to make more patients successfully able to stop therapy? So I think that's a really good question, and I think it's a question we don't really have all the answers for at the moment. 
it doesn't look like more potent TKIs improve response because we don't see better responses with second generation TKIs as compared to imatinib, although we do get more patients down to that deep level of response where they might be able to attempt to stop at therapy. It's very clear that the immune system is dysfunctional in chronic myeloid leukemia and not all those changes are corrected by TKIs. So it may be that by combining a TKI with an immunological approach such as interferon or perhaps a checkpoint inhibitor or sequencing these drugs, you might get improved responses. But I think it's going to be an incremental approach to improving the number of patients that achieve TFR. I think the other thing that's absolutely critical and we need to keep reinforcing with our patients is the importance of really strenuous compliance with taking their tablet every day. And if patients even miss one tablet in 10, they're never going to achieve those deep levels of remission that will allow them to attempt to stop TKI in the future. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that we've noticed, uh, that we, we uh, published a little bit on this from the MD Anderson, and then there was some some data also coming from uh, from analysis from the Euroski is that it appears that the longer you stay with a with a deep molecular response before you stop, the better your chances of staying with uh, with in remission after treatment discontinuation. Um, that is confounded by the duration of therapy, but in my view, it is the duration of the deep molecular response. So I prefer to to stop after five, six years of, of, M, of MR 4.5. What is your take on that? I, I would definitely agree with that. I think the Eurisky data showed that for every additional year somebody stays on TKI, their chances of successful TFR increases by around about 7%. So while the guidelines sort of suggest that you might be able to stop after three or four years, my practice would usually be for those patients in deep molecular response to try and continue for at least five years on full dose therapy. Within the UK, we have had studies where we've put patients onto half dose therapy before stopping, which have been very successful, but they don't necessarily increase the TFR success rate above a straight stop. But the half dose therapy for those patients that have side effects can be a very attractive approach, even if they've still got a small level of residual disease left in order to improve quality of life and reduce symptoms they might have while still maintaining a response. Absolutely, and you know, you mentioned about these combinations, a lot of combinations going on and we're gonna have to see with the longer term data if, uh, if and which one of these combinations may, may prove uh, uh, beneficial. Um, I am, like you, kind of inclined to think that some sort of uh, enhancement of the immune mechanisms would work, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But still a lot of things happening in, in CML. I think it is very exciting to see um, the new developments and the remaining questions where we still have uh, to do uh, enough research to try to get us there. So, well, thank you very much. This was uh, 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 always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, hopefully uh, next year we'll have some additional information, some uh, new advances that get us closer to answer some of these questions. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.